Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of October 1st, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And we've just gotten out of September, yet we're almost halfway through the regular season here uh, in uh, 2012 for Division Three football because we had five Saturdays in uh, September this week, uh, this year. And Keith, it hardly seems like we could possibly be halfway done with the season. But, uh, you know, five weeks in, uh, some teams have played five, most teams have played four, Skyac teams have played three, and then the NESCAC teams have played two. But we're, uh, we're a fair amount down the road towards figuring out at the very least, who the good teams are, even if most of the conference races are still very, very, very much up for grabs. Yeah, Pat, it does happen fast. These, you know, like you said, it's not even October yet. We're already five weeks in. But at the same time, I think it's, it's finally good to have this many results because now we can start to ascertain which ones are the flukes and which ones are, the, are maybe you know, the teams that are a little bit surprising to us that have staying power. You know, when I was putting together the top 25, uh, ballot on Sunday, you know, I like to go, you know, I try to go deeper. So I'm making sure I'm considering a proper number of teams. And also, uh, if I'm able to do the top 50 for the, around the nation, it helps me, um, you know, put, put the whole thing together. And so, you know, you, the deeper you go past the top 25, Pat, there are some surprise teams in there. And uh, now that we have five games or four games in, you know, you can't say Waynesburg is a fluke. Can't say Ithaca, Co, Millsaps, Whitworth, you know, I, I had to take a, a closer look at some of their schedules and say, OK, did these teams really play a lot of good teams or are they just, um, you know, am I holding reserving judgment until they play the better teams in their conference? You know, a lot of people could probably make the same case for Heidelberg, uh, which hasn't played is five and oh and hasn't played a close game. They've been dominating, but at the same time, they haven't played. A lot of a lot of great teams, and and Widener is another one. This week was the first team that that Widener played, uh, the first week that Widener played a good team, and uh, they had to put together a nice comeback to win. Let's look at the OAC, for example. Uh, you mentioned Heidelberg, uh, Baldwin Wallace lost this week. Otterbein, by virtue of beating Baldwin Wallace, gets into the top twenty-five. Although with just forty-four votes, it's not a very uh, ringing endorsement, um, because I would assume there are a lot of te- uh, a lot of voters. Uh, like me, who are still waiting to see what happens when Heidelberg plays somebody who's, you know, who's who's decent, because their opponents so far, uh, to this point, have a record of two and fifteen, uh, and, and Alma was the team that they played out of conference, so that's not very helpful either. No, it has hasn't helped them at all, and you know, in a normal year, that Ohio Northern game would have been a big early season game for them, and uh, Ohio Northern has really struggled this year. So, uh, you look at Heidelberg's results. And, uh, you know, it's fair for a top 25 voter to not buy in yet. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm on, the, on the bandwagon, I guess, because uh, they were 8-2 and two last season. And I thought they were one of those teams which, if they had gotten into the playoffs, you know, when you, the teams that get into the playoffs come into the next season with a little bit of name recognition. And if, if Heidelberg had been a playoff team last season and had started off 5-0, I think they'd be on a lot more radars. But because they weren't, even though they were 8-2, and two, which is – you know, a record that got some teams into the playoffs, like St. John Fisher, for example. Um, you know, I think they're they were a, they're a little bit below the radar, and and people are a little slow to buy in. And I think the other factor was the one that you mentioned, Pat. Um, that they're, they're right now. We don't know which team besides Mount Union is the OAC team that's um, you know going to cause a lot of trouble down the road here. I wasn't too keen on Otterbein only because they're coming off a three and seven season, and they lost their their head coach. He moved on to uh, move back to the NJAC 
and they started over with it with another coach. So I, I it was, you know, I was a little skeptical of Otterbein. And, uh, you know, we had to keep an eye on Baldwin Wallace and you have to keep an eye on Heidelberg. And when you look at those uh, those votes split up in the in the top 25 that, you know, Otterbein's 25th, Heidelberg is in the first slot receiving votes and Baldwin Wallace is, a, is two slots away there. And they're and they're almost, you know, not quite identical number of votes. But I think when those teams start facing off against each other and that's going to start happening uh, pretty soon here. Then we'll then we'll start to solidify. You know, the votes will start to solidify behind uh, one of those teams. That um, the Otterbein at Heidelberg game, October thirteenth, and um, Otterbein's already obviously beat Baldwin Wallace on Saturday, and then Baldwin Wallace and Heidelberg play in uh, November. So two really interesting results that kind of really uh, sit at either end of the extremes for Otterbein. One of them is. Uh, the home game against Gallaudet, which they won just 15 to nothing. Uh, and our, I don't remember, obviously, last year Otterbein went to Gallaudet, and that was a uh, that was a surprisingly close game as well. Uh, and then they come they come out on Saturday, and they really just kind of manhandle Baldwin Wallace. I mean, I know that um, you know, I think we talked last week, and we certainly saw its result in the poll. Uh, Baldwin Wallace sliding a little bit uh, by a spot in our poll by uh, struggling with Muskingum, but I did not expect. Um, the 21 point uh, margin of victory here for Otterbein. And, and, you know, the thing about it too, is it was pretty, it was pretty emphatic because it was a 24, 17 game at the half. And then Otterbein put two touchdown drives together in, in the fourth quarter to, to really salt that game away. And, and it, it, you know, it wasn't fluky. There wasn't anything about it where, uh, you know, Otterbein won on a, you know, it was, they kept it close by luck and then won on a, you know, some kind of late play. It, it was really a, a pretty um, thorough victory. And, and that happened a, a few places around uh, around Division Three uh, on Saturday where we had, you know, teams that were, I, I didn't expect to win, that didn't just win, but they won thoroughly, you know. And, and, and this Otterbein won now, you know, eyes eyes open because the, you had the Gallaudet win, you had them beating Wilmington. And you had them beating John Carroll, which was was a little bit of a surprise uh, last weekend, but it but it um, wasn't quite to the level of of them beating Baldwin Wallace. Now that they've beaten John Carroll and Baldwin Wallace, now you start to be like, okay, uh, you know, this is different than beating Gaida and 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 Wilmington. These guys might really be for real this year, and uh, I think it's going to be fun to watch. It's always that second spot in in the OAC, you know, we always concede the first spot to Mount Union, and for twenty more than twenty years now, are we on twenty? Sure, ninety four. I think <laughs> ninety four was a three way split. Right, right. So, so for twenty years now, Mountain Union has in uh, has won the OAC, and so we yeah we take a look at that that second spot, and that that's one of the you know hot chases for a, for a playoff spot, and uh, one of, one of the things that we watch closely uh, across the country. So Baldwin Wallace, the only team that drops out of the top 25, as we mentioned. Um, you know, it's a little bit hard to talk about the rest of the top 25 without talking about the whitewater Platteville game, so maybe we'll come back uh, to that in a little bit. Um, I was on uh, Inside the Huddle, the, the, the Liberty League show with the extra L in Huddle, um, on Sunday night, and the, the question, one of the questions on their mind was, who joins Mount Union in Salem? And to be honest with you, there's, there's two parts to that question. One... Uh, Mount Union is just blowing the doors off of everybody, and uh, you know seems destined to return to the Sa- to Salem for, you know, this would be uh, number eight, eight years in a row, and you know, 75 of the last 78 or something like that. Um, but on the flip side of that is the 
the clear, clear indication over the past few weeks that Wisconsin Whitewater is not uh, up to its Stag Bowl team standards of late. Um, so their question to me was that, and I'm going to turn around and pose that question to you. Well, I think it's a legitimate question for, for Frank and James to, to ask, but it's also... But not for me? And for you, you're right. I'll give you credit for it. it um, but it's early yet. It, it really is early. It's, it's even too early in my mind to assume that Mount Union is going back. And, you know, you always pencil uh, Mount Union in, you pencil Whitewater in. But um, Mount Union's results are, are very convincing. Franklin, 45-7. Franklin, the only team to, to even score on Mount Union. And then uh, Muskinga, Marietta, and Ohio Northern. They have Wilmington next week. They have Capital. Uh, on October 13th, they don't really have a, a, a real tough opponent in, until October 20th, and that's at Otterbein, and that's a game that two weeks ago we wouldn't have considered a tough opponent. Then it's Heidelberg, Baldwin Wallace, John Carroll, and then the postseason. And if you remember, Pat, how how um, Mountain Union went through the postseason last year, uh, they weren't the they weren't those convincing blowouts. You know, they had a twenty to eight game, and and the center game, you know, ended up being thirty to ten, but it was close for a while. And the Wesley game, you know, they won by a touchdown, and then got to the Stag Bowl, and it, and it wasn't even a high scoring Stag Bowl. It was thirteen ten. So, uh, you know, I don't even know if we can assume just from Mount Union's uh, first first four results here that um, that they're going back to Salem. You know, the but if you, if the question is who's going to join Mount Union in Salem. I think right now you have to start with Mary Harden Baylor. It's I agree. Not, not just because they're the number two team in the poll, but but the the way they're they're winning. Um, you know, for for years we've talked about this several times on several podcasts, Pat, where the Achilles heel would be they they're just too one dimensional. Uh, at some points in the season, you know, teams realize if teams can can slow down the run game, uh, you, then you know they don't they can't throw it on you. Well, now that's not the case anymore. You've mentioned it, you know, almost every podcast that that Ladero Bailey is having a, a nice game throwing the ball. He had a really nice game yeah. <laughs> throwing the ball on uh, on Saturday against Sol Ross State. Mary Harden Baylor put up uh, seventy six points uh, in in a seventy six twenty eight win, and that's not even um, you know they weren't they weren't trying to run up the score. They, they put Jake Sims in in the third third quarter, I believe, of that game. Um, Mary Harden-Baylor hit four big plays of, of 70, 67 yards or longer. One of them was a kick return. Um, but I, the, the thing that stood out to me was the the balance that they had. Uh, it was 383 rushing and 379 passing. Um, you know, and that's 762 yards of offense, which is, you know, a, a ridiculous number. And, and certainly they're not going to put that kind of offense up every week. But if they got that, that run-pass balance... And and they they have you know a great defensive player in uh, in Javis Jones and then um, you know usually surround that that one great defensive player. Some years it was a safety, you know Kubiak or, or Derek Williams, and some years uh, you know it was a defensive end. But they usually had that one real standout defensive player, and then surround them with a lot of guys who are fast to the ball and physical up front. You know I, I think um, they they're going to be a threat. And and the other thing about you know, the teams that are ranked two and three in the poll right now is that um, Mount, uh, Mary Harden, Baylor, and Linfield don't don't fear Mount Union the way some teams do because they haven't played yet. And the, the one time Mary Harden, Baylor played, they went to Alliance. This is going back to 2004 and won there. And then Linfield and, Mar and Mount Union have never matched up in, in the postseason. For all the years, both of those teams have been, you know, among the top five or six teams in the postseason um, or in the country, I'm sorry, um, they haven't. We haven't seen those two match up yet. So that could be an interesting storyline to watch down the line. 
But I, I think right now the two teams that look great are Mount Union, Mary Harden, Baylor. And then there, there are some things not to like about that next group. You know, Wesley uh, has lost a game and has looked um, – Wesley's played a tough schedule, and I think Linfield has played a couple of pretty tough games as well. Um, there, there's some things not to like about, Winf- about, about Wesley, about Whitewater, uh, in terms of how they've performed. St. Thomas, I'm not, not quite sure about them yet uh, because they, they have new stars. And Linfield has a couple big injuries in, uh, in, in Tyler Steele being out for the season and then losing running back Josh Hill, although they did a nice job on Saturday uh, overcoming that. Indeed, in, in beating Pacific Lutheran. Um, I know that you know obviously details on this are pretty sketchy, but uh, or you know unofficial and non-existent. But obviously, uh, you you remember Linfield has been such a pass-first team uh, for so many of the you know the years that they've been nationally prominent here on the Division Three level. Uh, they were obviously nationally prominent uh, on the NAIA level as well. Um, but you know they it seemed like Hill would be the uh, would be the one piece that they might really need to help put them over the top and give them a a, a credible running game in in those uh, in those big games in the postseason. Yeah, and, and sometimes you have to have it. You know, if if you if they if you get sent to Wisconsin or Ohio in, in the first week of December, you know, to, to play a semifinal game, you generally want to be able to run the ball. You know, and and uh, we've seen it, Pat. There there are games. Um, you know, I can remember some of the photos. You know, with where the snow is 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 pushed up. To the side, you know, just outside, the, you know, you know, outside the, the barriers of that four-yard marker that they put around the the, the out of bounds line, you know, sometimes these, these games in the playoffs, you know, it gets cold and it, the conditions aren't great for throwing. Um, you know, it, it rains, of course. You can never predict that, so it, it helps to be able to have a run game. And and it's the same thing we said about Mary Harden Baylor too. You want to be able to have that, that balance. Uh, you know, so so for Linfield right now, I think that the the injuries are are the question, but. You know, we're we're still only halfway through, and, and all these teams are still writing the the ends of their stories, and 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 there there's other teams I think lurking that that we could be impressed with if if they do the right things over the next five weeks here, next uh, six weeks I guess you know for the end of the regular season. North Central was super impressive on on Saturday, and that's a team that lost its opener and sort of and fell off the not off the radar, but fell down the top twenty five a little bit. Uh, Platteville, you saw the game, Pat. Uh, sound like they're they're pretty impressive offensively, although they they have you know key injuries to deal with now. Um, and, and I personally like some of some of those teams out of the South that that could really be trouble if they get get hot in the playoffs. You got Louisiana College, Huntington, and uh, Birmingham Southern. I think that are all looking pretty good so far. So uh, th- this could be one of those seasons where it's wide open. Whether the question is, is there one spot open in Salem to, to for somebody to go play Mount Union, or is Mount Union not even a shoe in and this could be the most wide open? And to talk about the, the Whitewater Platteville game for a bit, first of all, you know, I've been to now three of the four Whitewater games, so I, I don't think I could be seeing uh, Whitewater play again anytime soon. It's uh, just been an interesting combination of uh, things that have gotten me to those games. One was a uh, a cheap flight to Chicago. Uh, one was a Friday night game. You know those sorts of things. Uh, and you know when Whitewater and Platteville became this battle of top fifteen teams, only uh, four and a half hours away, I had to uh, get myself down there. So so here's what I saw. Um, I saw Whitewater go three and out on its first uh, on its first two possessions, and Platteville answer with touchdowns. Um, 
you know, with uh, with with John Kelly at quarterback, uh, Platteville looked pretty good. And to be honest with you, um, it seems like uh, Platteville had the best two, maybe the best three quarterbacks uh, rostered in that game. Unfortunately, only two of them were dressed, and then by the end of the uh, by the end of the afternoon. Uh, two of them had their uh, shoulders in slings as John Kelly broke his collarbone in the second quarter, and he did not return. So uh, John Kelly was already the second-string quarterback. Bryce Corrigan, uh, the uh, who started the season as the number three, came into the game, and he started off a little bit slow, but he uh, he finished off pretty well. Uh, he ended up 17-32. He did throw three interceptions, but uh, at the end of regulation, he led the team on uh, what could have been two scoring drives. Um, ended up being uh, one scoring drive that uh, could have tied the game with 13 seconds ago. We'll get back to that in a second. Um, you may, you guys may know some of this if you followed it on Twitter or you read it on the uh, on the website. But um, one of the things that you know got some play as it happened, um, <clears throat> but then uh, you know kind of disappeared the way the the rest of the game ended uh, was. Uh, Bryce Corrigan and, uh, has uh, led the team down to the uh, Whitewater 24-yard line. Uh, he's uh, he's chased out of the pocket. He's running. He's trying to pick up extra yards. And uh, at the end of the play, the ball comes out. And uh, people watching at home saw this on their uh, on their video screens, but people in the stadium saw this on their video screens as well as uh, the uh, as the video was replayed not once but twice on the jumbotron by the order of the athletic director, I was uh, I was told I could say that. I think I was told I could say that. I've said it now. Um, and the fans obviously gave the uh, officiating crew a big piece of their minds because uh, Corrigan not only had one knee down but apparently had both knees down before the ball came out. Uh, so Whitewater gets the ball on its own 16-yard line, goes three and out, uh, which is that uh, was not unusual for them on Saturday. And Corrigan uh, brings them back down. They score to cut the lead to uh, to cut the lead to one with 13 seconds left, and then uh, bring out the two-point conversion uh, unit to uh, try to win the game. Whitewater takes a timeout. Uh, Platteville comes back out with a kicking unit, and uh, Whitewater takes another timeout. So Platteville comes back out with a two-point conversion unit and uh, throws a fade uh, to the corner of the end zone that goes incomplete, and Whitewater covers the onside kick and runs out the clock. So here's the kicker, um, so to speak, sorry. Uh, the reporter for the uh, Wisconsin State Journal told me when he talked to Mike Emmendorfer, the head coach of Wisconsin Platteville, uh, he said his intention was never to kick the ball, that no matter which unit he had out there, he was always going for the two-point conversion, and that what... Uh, Lance Leipold saw on that second go-round was something in the formation that indicated a fake, so he called his uh, he called his other time out there. So interesting that uh, Platteville at home, you know, uh, going against the uh, the old coaching cliche where you go for the tie at home and go for the win on the road. But you know, I, I looked at it and you know you and I briefly exchanged this uh, conversation on Twitter a little bit for everybody else to see, but the uh, the thought of, I'm sure, going into going into overtime uh, with your number three quarterback, um, giving Whitewater, which has struggled to move the ball, you know, the ball on the 25-yard line with a kicker who's pretty darn good from 42 yards and in, 
Uh, it's probably not the best situation for uh, for Platteville to be in. I can as only assume that that's the reason why they uh, tried to end the game in regulation. And I think those are your two reasons why you would go for two at, at the end of uh, regulation. That you either you you love the play you love the play call that you have for the two point and there are coaches that will sit on a play the whole season. You know, eight nine games into the year, they they won't use the play until they need it. You know, and could be just but you know it's it's amazing it's the one play to get three yards but it, it's in that tight compressed area down uh in 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 the red zone there and and you got to have a perfect play so you either love the play uh or you don't think you're going to win in overtime your team is spent you know you're down to your third quarterback which was with Platteville's reason uh you know the other team has a great kicker is is a fine reason um but but if you don't think you can win in overtime and that's where the you know I'm not a bit I'm not big on the on the home and away thing but I do think a coach you know knows he feels his team and if his team is, is is the one that's you know a lot of times if it's the one that stormed back uh that's the one that carries the momentum into the overtime um then that you know you may want to play overtime in, in Platteville's case they were the team that had the lead and was protecting it but then they also uh you know came back and uh and, and had to score and um you know, for for that game in particular, the the two point conversion, we end up talking about it. But uh, big picture, does it does it tell us more about Platteville? Does it tell us more about Whitewater? I, it, it confirms for 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 me and Pat just from a comment you made earlier on the podcast. I think for you that that we're, we're not the old Whitewater here. It's not a team that lives up to the 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 standard that it set over the past seven seasons. But by the same token, it's also one that that took another team's best punch and was able to rally, find a way to win. So those are sometimes the building blocks, the the, the things that that um, help help uh, decent teams become really good teams and believe in themselves and help young teams uh, really play well. And, and it also tells us, you know, as as voters, that that Platteville is pretty legit. Um, you know, we've seen. Over the years, Platteville be kind of one of the the lower half programs in the WIAC, and they did started to rise up five and five in 2010, seven and three last season, and then we're off to the three and zero start this year. You know, putting up a, an average of more than 50 points a game, but but that's not untypical for them or atypical because uh, because Mike Emmendorfer is the guy who you know literally wrote the book or wrote the PowerPoint presentation on on offensive. Uh, you know some of these spread passing games and the screens and if you, seriously if you google his name you'll you'll see um there there it used to strike me as odd because i, I was like how how's a guy from platteville writing the 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 book on offense when when they don't win but now that you know now that they're winning and, and you see them putting up 50 points a game um you know it all kind of makes sense and and i think maybe you could tell me this better than i could answer it for myself but it but Platteville now has the players to, to compete in in the WIAC, and it's going to be maybe a decent three way race between, uh, maybe even a four way race um, between uh, Whitewater, Platteville, Oshkosh, and and maybe Lacrosse. Yeah, and I think I actually think Oshkosh might be the best team in the conference right now. Um, <clears throat> I have to admit I'm not voting that way because I have a hard time. I keep sliding Whitewater further and further down my ballot. I would like to see uh, Oshkosh play. Uh, Whitewater as they do coming up here, uh, just to kind of reaffirm that before I, I make that drastic a change. Um, but, you know, I think that 
uh, you know, what I saw out of Bryce Corrigan, for example, I mentioned he was 17 to 32 passing. I, I counted five drops. Um, you know, they were uh, he was he was throwing catchable balls and not getting a lot of help um, in, a, in a lot of in a lot of circumstances. You know, there was no running game, uh, just like uh, almost everybody else against Whitewater over the course of the last eight years or so. Uh, Platteville was was seriously unable to run and then uh, eventually unwilling to run. They only ran the ball 13 times and they only got nine yards out of it. So it was really, you know, this guy, third string uh, quarterback when the season started, uh, having to win the game by himself. And he, he, he almost did. I wanted to ask you, actually, you mentioned, um, you know, a coach sitting on a play call. Uh, what do you think uh, in terms of high percentage calls with a, with a third string quarterback, a, a fade route? It's it's not it's not my favorite, um, but but I think a fade route is is more about knowing the the quarterback that you have and the receiver that you have. If if the guy throws it every day in practice and he can put it perfectly in that back corner of the end zone where his guy can go up and get it and, and bring his feet down and bounds. And if you have a big receiver or a short-handed receiver that can go get it, then uh, you know if you feel like that's your best play, then uh, then then fine. But I think I, I'd be you know um, more comfortable with with a, something quick hitting a slant. Um, uh, something where you you know you get the guys crossing off the line and, and really the defensive backs in, in that situation have no time to react. So if if you have a quick hitting play, uh, if, if you feel like you have to throw the ball, um, you know I like something like that. And I think the other thing that the, that people you get a little scared sometimes to run the ball down there. But if but if you got a good uh, you know misdirection. Uh, type of run play a direct snap or uh, you know some kind of trap or something like that that you haven't um, pulled out very often sometimes those those work great down there again you only need three yards if you love your line now in this case you know you only rush for nine yards all day a pass play probably makes sense um, but you, you have to know the quarterback more intimately than than you or I could know just just by watching the game because you're down to a to guy who's a who's a third stringer um, I think going back to to what we mentioned, you know, I think the white the the Y going to be pretty fun, and it's going to happen pretty fast here because uh, Platteville we've been home three weeks in a row now, five thousand fans that <clears throat> were at the game on on Saturday. Yep. Um, and then uh, they're going to go to Lacrosse and then go to Oshkosh the next two weeks. So we're, we're going to get some of those battles that we've been looking for in the Y and we'll get some of the clarity uh, of who's going to rise up in this conference. If you had October first for the first uh, mention of clarity on a uh, around the nation podcast, I believe you are our winner. Congratulations! Uh, we don't have a prize for you. Um, here's my takeaways on Whitewater for the for the week and for the the three times I've seen them. Like uh, I think I like I said already, it remains basically impossible to run these guys. The front seven uh, is fantastic. They're going to need to be the ones that carry them because um, the secondary secondary is doing a decent job. Obviously, it was a a bit of a challenge. Um, against Platteville because they were, uh, you know, running a, a lot of four and, and even five receiver sets. Um, backup quarterback sounds like it's not an option for them. You know, everything I was hearing was that uh, Matt Barrett, who's the guy who's listed as the number two, is not ready to step in and, and be the starting quarterback. So it's going to be sink or swim with Lee Brecky. Um, you know, Brecky, for those who haven't seen him play, uh, you know, he, he's uh, he's not a he's not a downfield passer. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of escapability. He's uh, he's only a halfway decent runner. Um, yeah, they, they really need him to. Uh, uh, they, he really needs uh, a running game to be 
to be a standout for him uh, like it was in the 2010 playoff run. And here's what we found on, uh, or at least what I saw on Saturday, was uh, Nick Patterson, who's a uh, you know a guy who was pretty far down the depth chart, a, a freshman running back when the season started, um, breaking off uh, a big run, a 46-yard run, including a, a stiff arm on the sidelines at the end of it, uh, wearing number 32. Does any of this sound familiar? Does this work for you at all, Keith? Yeah, yeah, the the famous Justin Bieber stiff arm, stiff arm you're bringing. Yeah, that's the one I was getting at. Um, he ended up with 106 yards on the afternoon, uh, 46 of them on that one carry. Um, but you know, uh, I thought that he showed something that that Desmond Ward doesn't have, and Ward is a big guy who, um, you know, doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of moves in the open field because he's big. He's kind of built more like a fullback. They list him at. 60252. I think that that pretty much sums it up. Um at Patter- bowling bowling ball is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um bowling balls don't change direction much, so that kind of works. Um I thought uh I thought Nick Patterson showed something on on Saturday and if he continues to uh continues to uh you know, get some reps and get, have that kind of success, it could change the way Whitewater looks for the rest of the season, but those are my uh, those are my takeaways on Whitewater right now. I just um, when uh, when I was asked earlier in the day uh, on Sunday about who might be a, a Stag Bowl uh, possibility, I I don't think I put Whitewater on the list to be honest with you. But you know that um, if a, a change in the run game uh, occurs, that could really change the outlook for them on offense. It, it, it's weird though; you you don't count them out until somebody beats them. And right now, you know, Buff State was the team that beat them. But you, you look at the their their four games, Pat. They'd given up uh, fourteen points, just just the two touchdowns uh, before Platteville put up twenty six on them, and then uh, they they sound like they buckled down after giving up fourteen points early in, in that game, and and the defense gave the Warhawks a chance to rally. And if that offense finds itself. You know they're going to be uh, they're going to be a tough out at any point during the season. Of course, you know I'll be looking forward to that Oshkosh game on the twentieth. You know maybe maybe Eau Claire. I mean maybe Lacrosse. You know in the final game of the season ends up being a huge game. But but here's what else. I, you know I I have to think about Whitewater now. How how much of their spot in the poll is based you know strictly off what they've done in the past. So right now, I had to. I flipped on in my latest ballot. I flipped Salisbury and Whitewater, and it's weird because they those teams played head to head in last year's playoffs. Whitewater won thirty four fourteen. You know, it was, a, it was a very clear you know distinction between the two teams. But they have a common opponent this season. Salisbury just beat Buffalo State uh, twenty to seven on Saturday. And in Buff State, you know, had had won that game at Whitewater back on on the fifteenth of September. So, you know, uh, as much as I would would say to myself, if you asked me today if, if if Salisbury and Whitewater played, who would I pick to win? You know, you, you'd pick Whitewater. But they have a common opponent, so common sense says you, you rank uh, Salisbury ahead of Whitewater. And so I actually dropped Whitewater a spot in the poll this week by using that logic, even though. 
you could also look at it the other way and say, hey, these guys have ba- barely been scored upon all year. They they put together a great win to rally to beat Platteville, another team that we have in the top 15, and they should be moving up in the poll. And uh, it's just that they've set the bar so high at, at Whitewater that we're looking at this right now as a team that's struggling. And really, it's a team that's three and one and, and just put together one of its, you know, most uh, emphatic wins of the season. And I'm looking at the game, that game and thinking that if John Kelly were healthy, then we wouldn't be having this discussion because I really think that Platteville could have very easily won that game going away and it would be a completely different conversation. Um, because, you know, to be honest with you, this is the kind of game where, uh, you know, I might think about moving Platteville up on my ballot, but I know that the Platteville team that's going to take the field next is not the team that took the field at the beginning of the game on Saturday. Uh, you mentioned Salisbury and the common opponent. Um, you know, I I agree. I also moved. Uh, I had I had still had St. Thomas uh, below Whitewater on my ballot, but after having seen uh, Whitewater so many times this season, uh, I I felt like uh, we could I I could look past the way that uh, St. Thomas and Whitewater played last year because clearly these teams are sufficiently different uh, in order to flip that around. Pat, that's why it's nice to have four and five results now because we can start. Putting, you know, putting aside what we saw last season or what we what we thought we knew and, and you, you stop considering week one and week two results as, as a fluke and you start to judge a team, you know, with, with that full picture. You know, you have the, the several weeks of whitewater now. They are what they are. You have several weeks of, of some teams that are on the rise now and we have to start paying attention to them. Two-point conversions were the uh, were the end of the end result in a, a couple of other games involving top twenty-five teams as well. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about Augsburg on the podcast last week because I saw them play, and then uh, Ayrton Scott very nearly willed his Augies past uh, Bethel, and that came uh, game came down to a two-point conversion as well. Um, you know, this is a guy who's. Who again? He threw for 224. He ran for 127. Uh, but you know, for for Bethel, Bethel's got some tougher games coming up. Obviously, they play uh, Concordia Moorhead next week, and then they uh, follow with uh, St. Thomas coming up as well. I hate to I hate to use the the trap game reference, but I certainly think that's at least a possibility. Although I do think that at some point Augsburg is going to be that good. Yeah, and in they're right now kind of a program on the rise, but I, th- I think everybody's impressed with, with the quarterback. And, uh, you know, if, if Scott is the player that he, he looks like he's going to be. And, uh, you know, we've, we've seen Augsburg have, have good offenses, but I, I thought Saturday showed that, uh, that they have a, a well-rounded team. If you, you can hang with Bethel, if you can slow down uh, the, the Royals' rushing attack, then, uh, then you have, a, you know, the makings of, of what could be a pretty good solid squad. Yeah, and Eric Peterson, who'd had some really good uh, passing performances here in his first year as a starter, was held to 7 of 14 passing for 49 yards. Um, also, the Milliken-Illinois-Wesleyan game came down to a two-point conversion in overtime. You know, Keith, Milliken and Illinois-Wesleyan, um, as schools, as athletic departments in general, have been uh, have been pretty strong rivals uh they had been in basketball when Milliken was competitive, and Milliken hasn't been competitive in basketball in a while. But uh, you know, clearly this was a, a big deal in football. They're the only two downstate Illinois teams yep. uh, in that conference, which, uh, which which helps add to that rivalry. But uh, you know, if, with Milliken coming in at four and zero, Milliken I thought had played 
better competition than Illinois Wesleyan had up up until uh, this point in the season. I really thought Milliken had a shot to pull it off, and they almost did. Well, they certainly had a shot to pull it off, Pat. They went in overtime and, and uh, you know, had a two-point conversion pass be incomplete. I think you, you cast this in a good light, too, in that in the CCIW for so many years now, it's been mostly the Wheaton and North Central show. And so when you have two teams that are off to good starts and they, they, they come in, you know, getting ready to play each other and, and uh, get that first real big conference win under their belts, you know, it's a big deal. And, and it, both teams were up to the challenge. You know, the, uh, the, the final statistics, you know, almost look even. Milliken had 449 yards of offense and, and Illinois Wesleyan had 442. They both, you know, uh, the Titans were a little bit over 200 yards rushing and, and, and Milliken was a little right, right below at 192. But, you know, these are, these are the, the, the games where the teams that are just below the, the top level in a conference have a chance to, to make some noise and, and to jump up a little bit. And I know that we have uh, Illinois Wesleyan in the poll, and, and they were a playoff team last season. This was more of an opportunity maybe for Milliken uh, you know, to, to not only you know, get a big conference win, get a big road win, but also to get everybody to start paying attention. And it, it's weird that it's just a completed two-point conversion that, that probably keeps them from, from being more of a topic of discussion this week and going forward. Milliken had two shots at that two-point conversion. The, uh, the first attempt was uh, negated because of a defensive holding call on Illinois Wesleyan. So they got a second shot at it from the one or the one and a half, half the distance, and they, uh, they were not able to convert on that one as well. So Illinois Wesleyan... Uh, remains undefeated they remain in the poll uh, obviously you know at at number 14 i thought that was a team that uh you know coming in at 14 i thought there was a team that could slip uh but baldwin wallace kind of took uh all the slippage around them and uh there wasn't anywhere for illinois wesleyan to go yeah but those are the teams that you watch you know next week now okay illinois wesleyan you know had to go to overtime to beat milliken as you know, just like we saw, we were clued in, you know, maybe a week ago when Baldwin Wallace struggled and they fall this week. You know, we saw we saw um, Rowan struggle and they didn't they didn't lose this week. They had a pretty nice win against Brockport State. But those are the teams now that you put on your radar going in the future here for possible upsets. And, and you know, you want to see teams be consistently dominant and I know it's not always possible some weeks you have to, your team gets a free pass and you say hey if they just got out of there with a victory go for them but you can't you can't have to escape in overtime um you know week after week you know for 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 Illinois Wesleyan to survive a shot from the one and a half yard line in overtime it is cutting it about as close as you possibly can cut it and uh, I know Milliken is, is really kicking themselves for this one because I'm sure they feel like they they had a good game plan they played well and they they had a, a chance or two chances as you mentioned to to pull that game out in overtime and you know if a game goes to overtime you know you had a chance to win it in regulation as well and uh, that's one they'll they'll be kicking themselves for for a little while Illinois Wesleyan should be all right next week they travel to North Park then they host Carthage and it's back-to-back weeks in October at Wheaton and at North Central uh, that are going to be uh, obviously the, the big games for them over the rest of the course of the regular season. Um, you know, Keith, we have not really talked so much this year about Hobart, which is a team that is, uh, you know, kind of quietly sitting at its highest position ever in our poll right now. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure if it's because, 
you know, they haven't played the interesting teams on their schedule yet. Um, you know, because uh, obviously we talked about them when they played Utica, uh, and, and Utica was intriguing. But yeah, they just kind of blew the doors off WPI this week. Uh, they host Springfield, and Springfield has been a little down. Uh, then they go to RPI, and they host Union. And, uh, you know, I guess one of the nice things is that Hobart has a 10-game schedule this year instead of eight. Um, but, you know, also I, I really think that uh, Hobart's playing really well right now, obviously. Yeah, they, they had gotten off to a, a good start in the first couple games defensively. And then, you know, you, you, you face Utica, a team that can really put up some some yardage. And, um, you know, we, we the thing about Hobart now, you look at that schedule and really it's just them being consistent week to week because I don't think there's a there's a team that they play that they really need to to, to fear necessarily, you know, um, RPI could be a good game with, with, uh, with, you know, Mike Herman at quarterback. But, you know, if, if Hobart is putting up points like the, the way they did on, on uh, Saturday, obviously you can't expect 61 points to happen often. You know, they had a, a defensive touchdown in that game, so it wasn't, wasn't all complete offense either. Um, and that 61, I believe, was a Hobart record of well over 100 years. Uh, Pat, what was the stat that yes, was on the site? Since the 1890s was the last right, time. right. Yep. So, so they they can't expect them to put up 61 often, obviously. But if they can score like that, you know, I, I thought the early results had set, had shown us that their their calling card was going to be defense this season, and, and it looks like now, you know, that they can score with Utica. They they you know have those kind of outbursts uh, on weeks like this where they they put up 61. You know, they they're dangerous, and uh, if you go back to the last time they played a really great team. I know it's last season, and, and we're, we're trying to get past last season's results here, but everybody who was at that Hobart-Wesley game, and even this is coming out of the Wesley program, said you know that team was very legit. And, and Hobart, in some years, I think was a team that, that tended to be a little overrated, but I, I think this year they're the opposite. They're, they're maybe, um, if not underrated in terms of where they slot in the poll, they're definitely under-discussed and, and they, they may may be that way for a while. Again, the whole, the RPI game could get interesting. The Union game could get interesting. But they are in position now to, if they play well every week, they should finish out undefeated. And then we start talking about that 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 discussion of does it you know what do you do with an East team that's ten and zero? And I know I'm jumping way ahead for for the comfort of Hobart fans, but I really <laughs> I really think they're they're. Their first five results have shown us that they should be pretty dominant this season, and uh, uh, the Liberty League could, you know, may not be that interesting of a race. For those who didn't get the the reference Keith just made, um, you know, if you, if you're new to the site or new to the podcast or new to the serious playoff picture from the East this year, um, you know, in the in the past several years. Uh, the uh, the East hasn't been able to produce a uh, a standout undefeated team, uh, and and Mount Union has been placed as the top seed in a bracket of easternmost teams basically. So there's been no uh, East Region team that's gotten a number one seed. Uh, I think obviously there are quite a lot of teams. Well, not quite a lot. There's a handful of teams that are still in contention for it. Uh, St. John Fisher, obviously, uh, very possible. Uh, Widener would be another Widener, one. Widener, I was see, I was trying to get there by in means of a segue. So we'll just go to talk about Widener now. Widener, yeah, I'm sorry, that's all right. Two touchdowns in the final uh, five minutes of regulation and two two point conversions to force overtime, and then eventually uh, beat Lebanon Valley forty thirty seven on Saturday. 
you know what was weird weird for me is the 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 way when I'm not at a game on Saturday and, and you know, we try to be at games as much as we can and as much as our regular lives allow, but it's it's not bad sometimes to stay home on a Saturday and be in front of the computer because you can you can uh you know, dip in, watch some video of one team, follow the live stats. There was actually a point where I kind of wrote the Widener game off. And uh you know, that's the type of thing that probably fires up a, a Widener fan. But, you know, Lebanon Valley had it 31-27 with, uh, you know, m- you know, midway through the fourth. Uh, 544, they, they put Actually, up Actually, 37-21. I'm sorry, I said it backwards. But kind I, of. I meant, yeah, it, it was a, you know, not just a two-touchdown lead, but a, but a 16-point lead. And so you, you figure, you know, even if Widener scores, you know, there was a point where I was, like, done going back to that game. And I was start, just started checking in on on other games and following the tweets from from other games and uh widener puts together a, a quick scoring drive gets a two-point conversion gets the ball back uh w- actually didn't get the ball back they had an interception return uh and, and then um you know hit the two-point conversion again and so for all the teams who who failed on saturday with their two-point conversions widener was the one who, who needed it twice and and was able to uh to convert uh both one pass and uh, and one run and then uh, won the game on a field goal in overtime and so this team now that that we've been kind of like wary of getting too excited about because they've been beating up on bad teams they finally played a good team and, and it took a you know it took the more than 60 minutes and it took a full effort and they had to come from behind to do it uh, but but that's a huge win uh, in max circles and that's a big win uh, on the road for Widener. Um, some of the other games that took place outside the top 25, we talk about big comebacks. Uh, that's a, obviously a very big comeback, no doubt. Uh, but uh, Hanover came back from 20 points down in the fourth quarter uh, to go on, and they forced overtime against Rose Holman, and they went on to uh, they went on to win in overtime as well. And each of those Hanover scoring drives in the fourth quarter was uh, 70 yards or longer. There were no uh, there were no quick scores there. Well, no. I, I, some of them were quick on the clock, but they were not. Uh, they were not short fields or turnover driven. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing you know, that stood out about that was uh, the the winning touchdown comes on a run by uh, the All American wide receiver. For um, wow, why I'm stumbling over wide receiver when when Daniels <laughs> should be the what I'm stumbling over. Pa- pass a few, pass a few. May am I saying it? I correct. Think so uh, we'll have to, we'll have to see what he says on Twitter tomorrow. For as long as he's been on the radar, I've I've never had the opportunity to you know broadcast a Hanover game, and so I, I haven't uh, uh, learned to master his name. But um, I can spell it, so there's that. There you go. And he has one that, of the he has one of the great Twitter handles too. Yeah, I like I like pass it to me. It's good. It works well. That should give us a clue of of how to pronounce the name. But uh, you know, back back to the the game itself. There, there are times as a team where where you know you're having your off day. And it's against a team you should beat. And uh, I think sometimes when you're down a couple scores, maybe two or three scores, and you get that first one, all of a sudden it clicks for you as a team and you start to buy in. You know, I, I played in a game like that where we were at Bridgewater, and this is when Bridgewater was bad, and I was playing for Randolph-Macon, and we were losing uh, 20 to nothing, and we scored 28 points in the fourth quarter to win that game. And um, it, it was after... You know, the first touchdown and then the first stop after the touchdown. And then I think at that point, you know, we knew we were going to win if we had enough time. And that was where the battle was. Not really could we could we gain yards and could, could we hang on to the ball, but where are we going to be able to beat the clock? And and you get in some of those games and those are the just really fun ones to be at and be a part of and, and, and watch. 
And, uh, you know, I know Hanover wasn't the only team that rallied in the fourth quarter on Saturday. There was another big one in, in Iowa as well. Yeah, and uh, also uh, St. Olaf rallied in overtime as well to beat St. John's. Um, you know, uh, you're talking about uh, Simpson coming back and beating Wartburg, um, which uh, which is a, a, a an impressive win as well. Um, I almost kind of even don't know if we need to even talk about St. John's anymore. It's almost like um, you don't even really ask the question, what's wrong with them? and just have to kind of... Ass- Accept that something's wrong and we move on. Well, it's only wrong by St. John's standards, too, because that team, that, that program has been so good for so many years. And when they would lose two games, it was an off year. And, and they're at a point now, Pat, where in their past 15 games, they're eight and seven. I mean, I would say that that's not just wrong by St. John's standards. I think that's a lot of there's a lot of programs where eight and seven over 15 games is something wrong. But I, you're right. And, and what you're what you said is it, it, in not so many words, is this is who they are now. They're not a 2003 championship team. They're not the the teams that made the postseason in uh, you know some of the the years a few years ago where they lost to Whitewater early in the playoffs, but they had really good regular seasons. This is who they are, and and because Minnesota for D3 football is such a such a I guess I want to say a, it's not a recruiting hotbed. The best way to explain it is there's a lot of great football programs in D3 in Minnesota and not a lot of huge high schools. It's one of those, um, it's not a huge population state. So there's not that, that many guys to feed necessarily. And then there's great D3 football in Minnesota as well. So there's just not, just not that many guys to go around. And for years, I think St. John's probably had the advantage of so many of the best players in the state ended up in Collegeville. And now those guys, some of them go to, to St. Thomas, some of them go to Bethel, you know, Concordia Moorhead um, is off to an impressive start. Got talented players popping up at Augsburg, you know, all of a sudden now those guys, maybe it's not even all of a sudden, St. Olaf is another one too. Um, it, it's been this way for a few years um, where, where the talent is spread a little better in the Mayak. And uh, we're really just seeing the effects of some of the other teams taking the lead possibly over St. John's in recruiting. And, and, and that's not something that I'm guessing. That's something that we've been told by, by people uh, who, who were recruited um, by the different programs in Minnesota that, you know, it got to a point where St. John's didn't have the best pitch anymore. And for so many years, that was the place to go, the place to be, the coach to play for. And, and if it's not that way anymore, that's part of the reason why, um, you know, they're 8-7 they're and seven over the past 15 games. Completely switching gears for a moment, uh, switching from uh, one side of the country to the other. How about what happened at uh, at Catholic on Saturday? You know, I know that um, I, I'd always thought that Catholic got up, uh, you, you would get up well for this game because, you know, Hampton City's coached by Catholic's former offensive coordinator, a Catholic grad in Marty Favret. But the that's not really the game that... Um, that Catholic seems to seems to win for no particular reason. I think the, the the game that Catholic seems to win for no particular reason most years is against Emory and Henry. Um, and often Hampton Sydney, uh, you know, Catholic has 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 played halfway decently against them, but Hampton Sydney has always been more talented. And I was just surprised that not only that uh, Catholic beat Hampton Sydney on Saturday, but by the fact that it was thirty four seven and forty one fourteen with seven and a half minutes to go. 
And, th- and that's the real big takeaway from this game. Hampton Sydney uh, got back in the game late with a couple of uh, Nash Nance to Holton Walker touchdown passes and uh, you know quick drives where they uh, where they scored, got an onside kick, scored again, and uh, and made it interesting. But it, it, Pat, it was like you said, forty-one fourteen at one point in the fourth quarter. It was you know thirty-four seven in the third. Uh, Catholic scored really just the first two touchdowns. There were some turnovers in this game that that were a big factor. Um, Hampton Sydney lost uh, two fumbles and had three interceptions. You know, five turnovers, not a good recipe to win. But sometimes you turn it over and, and, and your defense shuts the team out and you get the ball right back. Catholic put up uh, 428 yards of offense, you know, so they made those those five turnovers work for them. And I remember at least two of them led directly to, to touchdowns. So, um, you know, turnover is a big factor in, in that game for Hampton Sydney. And now I think it makes the ODAC, you know, wide wide open and you have Hampton Sydney now a team that you know maybe you thought was going to go 9 and 1 10 and 0 um they're on a two game losing streak and we have no idea what to make of of the teams in in Virginia now even though there are a lot of south region teams that that are really doing really well i don't think it bodes well for for the uh for the ODAC playoff representative but it means another season uh in that conference where it, every week is exciting Bridgewater's 4-0. They've played just one conference game. They beat Shenandoah just by three points. They uh, trounced a, uh, Apprentice School. You may know them as Newport News Apprentice. I, maybe W&L is the best team in this conference right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the surprising outlier result is having lost to Franklin and Marshall early on in the season. But, uh, you know, the the win against center is, uh, is, a, is a halfway decent one. Not Maybe not as impressive as it was when it happened, but uh, it might be the best win that is that the best uh, non-conference win that an ODAC team has? It is definitely up there, and I, I spent a lot of time looking at non-conference wins. I know you did. For way too much time um, for each conference this week, and that was one of the things that that um, one of the reasons why the ODAC didn't rank as high as you would expect based on their record. They're fifteen and seven non-conference. But um, you know they were nine and two against the USA South, and they played you know a MAC team here and, and, and team here, team there. It really the the results weren't that impressive, even though they beaten fifteen um, teams out of conference. Emory and Henry was another one that that had gotten off to a a good start by playing Maryville and Greensboro, and then you know they they get into ODAC play and and they lost their first game to Randolph Macon, and. Um, at WNL, you mentioned the Franklin and Marshall loss. I think if it wasn't for that, we'd maybe be buying into WNL as a top 25 team because the center win is impressive. And this is where we're at the point in the season, Pat, where we can think ourselves in circles yeah. if you start looking at you know different results. You know, If WNL lost the center, does that mean center is not good? Does that mean the best team in the SAA is not as good as the best team in the Centennial? And if that, you know, you can really make yourself crazy if you try to make sense out of everything. And that's some some things you just have to go. Well, that's football, and uh, you know we'll we'll look forward to next Saturday and see what the new results tell us. And and that's half the fun of it, really. You know, I was you know, wrapping myself around a handful of results uh, earlier in the day. Um, you think about. You know, I mentioned Otterbein playing Gallaudet and how, you know, beating them 15 nothing was not that impressive. And I think, well, but let's see, Gallaudet beat Catholic, and Catholic just beat Hampton-Sydney, and Catholic's other loss is to Carnegie Mellon, and, you know, Carnegie Mellon's only loss is to Wabash, and, you know, again, that's the sort of thing where you could just uh, turn yourself around in corners. 
Um, yeah, the other thing I would mention to people, if you have not seen uh, the uh, ranking the conferences around the nation, uh, I would highly, highly, highly recommend you do that. It will still be on the front page uh, when this podcast hits, um, but it will be uh, it'll be rolling off the front page. Sometimes you soon you always get it, of course, at uh, around the nation. Um, the other big news of the past week, I think we should uh, at least touch on a little bit, is uh, Mississippi College deciding that it's going to move back to Division Two. Something I think that's been talked about for years and and maybe even more years. But um, you know, there, there's the, this this kind of slow drip of schools moving out of Division Three and either going to Division Two for the first time or going back to Division Two. It's not nearly as big as the influx of new schools into division three but it uh it there is a there is that move out and um when mississippi college leaves if nothing else happens in the asc uh the asc will be down to six football playing members and they might after their two-year waiting period or grace period expires they would uh then possibly go back into pool b and and Maybe because I write the column with the national perspective, I'm so, I'm so guilty of this. But my first thought was exactly that. It was, okay, the ASC has six teams now. You have Trinity and Austin sitting out here as um, independent teams this season from the old SEAC. But you also have the SEAC with uh, Southwestern starting football. And you have Texas Lutheran moving from the American Southwest. So you say, okay, well, you have four SEAC teams and, and – uh, six left over in the ASC. Why don't you just make a 10-team conference under the ASC's banner so you can keep the uh, automatic qualifier? Makes sense, except that it doesn't make sense when you think the Texas Lutheran just left the ASC. Austin left the conference a few years before that. Trinity, I don't know if people thought they were reluctant to play ASC teams at one point, but they're certainly not anymore. They they played Mary Harden Baylor this season. They played... um, uh, Howard Payne and, and Texas Lutheran as well. But but the comment coming from one of our you know good friends down in Texas over Twitter was that if Trinity's not willing to commit the resources that Mary Harden Baylor is willing to commit in football, then there's no point in, in joining the same conference and trying to compete for that same playoff bid every year. So there are some real roadblocks or, or some reasons why we would think what seems like a perfect match uh, may not happen. And uh, it, it'll be... Certainly a situation to watch going forward what those what those Texas teams decide to do, because the other big consideration for them is travel. And, and if you can't if you're not in a conference, you can't just fill a schedule with the guys next door that happen to be in a different conference like you can if you're in New Jersey or New York or Wisconsin or you know Illinois. You don't have teams next door that are in different conferences. And so if, if these guys don't link up, you know, who knows where they're going to get games and and Wesley likes playing this barnstorming schedule, but I don't know if a lot of other teams want to be flying, you know, to to Alabama and Louisiana and California if they can help it. You know, I think that almost the best bet for the SCAC ever getting an automatic bid in football is uh, growing it from within. Um, Centenary in Louisiana, that's a former Division One school that's in the midst of transition to Division Three. You know, that's a school that has really small enrollment and could use an enrollment boost that uh, football would give them. Um, you know, that would be five. 
then if you could convince Colorado College to bring back football, that would be six. And University of Dallas had a club football program uh, that they tried to make uh, varsity. Now, this is going on eight to ten years ago. Um, those are the, you know, it, it's it's at least possible for those things to happen. Or, you know, it, 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 in kind of reaching further out, if the uh, if the conference could convince maybe Concordia of Texas to come over, you know, that's a, that's a school that, uh, that could, uh, move into the conference and add football. You know, there's always talk, there's been talk for the last couple of years about Harden Simmons leaving the ASC and, and coming to the SCAC. And that would be a, a school that brings a football program as well. But I think that the SCAC was really hoping that they could get, uh, the UAA to affiliate with them. Uh, and that would have been, uh, a, a perfect match in terms of numbers of number of schools. It eventually would be four and four. It would be a, a you know, a good balance. It'd be uh, schools that, you know, while they're not the same because the UAA schools are these gigantic research institutions, they're both kind of, I think, see themselves as academically a cut above, you know, the, uh, some of the other schools. Uh, there's no good way to say that. Just nope. That, but that's how they feel, and I'm just passing that along. Uh, my point being that uh, the SCAC kind of missed out on that because those schools, if you missed that over the offseason, they announced that they were going to affiliate with the SAA, half of them, and the other half were going to affiliate with the PAC. So uh, those aren't options anymore. But, uh, yeah, that that's it, – it certainly will be interesting to see how that develops and if other schools – you know, choose to move to Division Two, or what happens with the rest of the American Southwest Conference? You know, Louisiana College, for example, now loses its traveling partner in, in every other sport other than football. Obviously, there's no travel partners in football, but um, you know, Louisiana College and Mississippi College no longer will have that rivalry uh, within that league, and um, it, the the league kind of continues to dwindle away. There's, we mentioned there'll be six football programs. There'll still be twelve uh, programs overall. But you know, there. Uh, I don't know what uh, I don't know what the future holds over there. Well, and there's there's you know a few other angles to this where we want to discuss Mississippi College. You know, the the first question is why why do they go back? Well, it, it, for one reason, I don't know the the institutional thinking, but the Gulf South uh, as a D two conference is a great fit for them. They came from the the D two Gulf South over to D three. Uh, years ago, they were once D two national champions. Although that's a whole another story. Well, whole... except they're not anymore. Right, right. <laughs> yes. that's, that's a whole another story. They, <laughs> at once, they called themselves that. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, and you know, so my question is, what happens to the the backyard brawl, the Mississippi College Millsaps game? Do they still play that game every year if it's a D two D three game? I doubt uh, Millsaps plays that right. game. Right, yeah. right. Millsaps doesn't want a part of going against the. A, a, a you know team that's going to have thirty six scholarships uh, to none, but maybe for the first few years it won't make much of a difference. You know, it's not the type of event either, like uh, you know Johnny Tommy game or uh, uh, Secretary's Cup or something like that, where it's the not just the game of the year, but the one time everyone comes back to campus. At least to, to my knowledge, at the time we went down there, Pat, it was it was a nice game, but it wasn't to the point where Millsaps couldn't survive without it, or Mississippi College couldn't survive without it as a game. So, so we wonder the, what the future is for the for that game. And um, the other thing I think is D three was right on the cusp of having everybody conferenced up, 
And that would have meant not just um, everybody having, you know, no scheduling problems uh, and having fewer dates to fill between each other, but um, it would have meant, you know, access to the playoffs would be kind of cleaner in the sense that there wouldn't, there would, there was, if there's no conferences that, uh, no, no teams without conferences and, and just the UAA, uh, you know, there wouldn't have necessarily had to be a, a pool B bid or there'd be one pool B bid and every other bid would go to a conference and therefore uh, you would leave maybe six or seven bids for at-large teams. And I think those at-large bids are, are going away. They're going away fast. And, you know, when you get the, the NFC in New England splitting into two conferences and eventually you're going to take two automatic bids, um, the, the, the South is sort of giving those, those bids back. You know, the SEAC had an AQ and now they don't have it. And then the, the American Southwest, if they don't hang on to this, their, their automatic bid somehow, you know, they, they're all just going to be stuffed in that pile in Pool B, which means you really have to play a good schedule and perform really well against it to get in because you're being judged um, against everybody else that's in Pool B on, on the, the playoff criteria. And whereas if you're an automatic qualifier conference, you just win the conference and you're in, you know, you can lose two games, three games. If, if, if you end up winning the conference somehow, then you're fine. And uh, I think it's not a situation you want to be in going forward in D3 where you, you don't have the automatic qualifier and you don't have a, a set schedule. So I, I think these these teams in the South uh, really want to. Um, find some way to, to, to figure out what to do going forward and how to hang on to the, uh, to the AQ under the uh, ASC's banner. If you're an ASC fan, first of all, um, you know, the soonest that they could be without a, an automatic bid in football would be 2015. And that is if the conference decides not to let Mississippi College play in the conference next year. I know there was some uh, – I would say – go almost all the way and say bad blood about how McMurray – when it transitioned out of Division Three into Division Two, how it performed in the conference in its final season, and I suppose there's a, you know, I, I've heard that there may be uh, some rumblings about not letting the Choctaws stick around for 2013. But that would be, um, you know, shooting themselves in the foot football-wise because that would start the clock one year sooner. So they would have a, a two-year grace period, whether it's 2013 and 2014 or 2014 and 2015. And then in the year after that, they would not have an automatic bid in football unless something changed. Now, the question is, can you add another school to the conference? I'm not sure who it would be, to be honest with you. Um, you know, they missed the boat on Huntington. Huntington just uh, hooked up this, uh, you know, signed up with the USA South, and they start next fall. So that's a, uh, that was a, 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 an orphaned school that they... Um, could have had but chose not to I guess um, I think that if in terms of football they're more likely to see somebody add football you know I I wonder if for example I'm looking at the schools that are in the league you know uh, I mentioned Concordia Texas that if they add football I'm not sure they stay in the conference but maybe Texas Tyler um, which is a, a state school in eastern Texas uh, you know that which has uh, has had some uh, kind of broad-based athletic success in recent years. Uh, they might add football, but then again, if they do, that's going to um, kind of really upset the private versus state school balance in that league, and I think that might uh, that might make problems worse. Um, Letourneau is, is a really small school that could benefit from having football, but I have never heard one word about them 
uh, being interested in adding the sport. And I think that, um, you know, Letourneau has other institutional issues that it needs to deal with more than uh, it needs to worry about adding football. And I don't know anything about um, whether University of the Ozarks might be interested in doing that either. That's, that's always possible, but, um, but not something I necessarily know. So those are kind of the options. I mean, other than that, pretty much everybody else already has football or is leaving. Shriners leaving the league. Um, you know, so it leaves UT Dallas, UT Tyler, University of the Ozarks, Letourneau, um, and, and Concordia, Texas, who we've already talked about. So I'm not sure, to be honest with you. But then I would say, to be honest with you, also, Pool B, who knows what it looks like in 2016. It might not be such a bad place to be. Uh, I'll tell you who knows is Ralph Turner and him. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> except that except that we're talking about things that are four years down the line. So I'm just it could change again. Right. We're, we're guessing, but he's done a great job on the boards. Um, and, and if you're into this stuff, and and somehow if you haven't turned this podcast off yet, then you're probably into this kind of stuff. Um, there are great discussions going on uh, deep on the boards about what the what the pools will look like in, in a few years from now because this this conference movement stuff is kind of hard to keep up and I think maybe maybe it was selfish reasons when when I saw D three almost all conferenced up um, it was going to be this year was going to be the year we were down to three independents I think if the SCAC hadn't broken up because Chapman finally joined the the Skyac and. Um, it was another long-time independent that finally – oh, all the, the LaGrange and Huntington had finally linked up with conferences. And so it, we were going to be down – actually, Huntington was independent this year and then was going to join. And then it was just going to be Wesley, um, who's kind of, I guess, stuck but comfortable as an independent. And then, uh, and then McAllister, who is basically a member of the MIAC but chooses not to be in, in football. And so they're, they're fine as independent. They don't have problems scheduling because they're in Minnesota with a bunch of other schools. Um, and everybody else was going to be in a conference and in good shape. And so things just can never be perfect. You know, it would have been nice to have a, a D3 where we could, everyone could be under an umbrella. You could figure out who's going where and all that stuff. And, uh, and it just, you know, the, the conference craziness is, is underway. Okay. I have to be up for a conference call in five and a half hours, so I'm going to move ahead to talk about what's going on next week in Division Three football. We've got uh, Birmingham Southern is at Wesley. We've got a battle of the two top teams, or two teams we think are the top teams in the Empire Eight as St. John Fisher hosts Salisbury. Uh, Cal Lutheran goes to Redlands in a game that is uh, obviously for first place in the Skyac now, but probably also for first place at the end of the regular season. Uh, we mentioned Bethel is hosting Concordia Moorhead, North Central travels to Milliken. Hobart hosts Springfield. Platteville makes the uh, the shortest trip in the conference that they have uh, all season. They go up the road to Wisconsin Lacrosse. Wabash is at Wittenberg in a, a game between a top 25 team and a top 29 team. Not that we ever count them that way, so please don't list them as being ranked number 29 or whatever. Uh, Huntington goes to Millsaps. We have uh, Rowan Montclair State. Uh, our alma maters meet this week. What do you think? Wow, <laughs> I, I didn't even notice. We don't even we haven't uh, talked about it. I think the ODAC we we gave it probably probably as much discussion as we needed to give it, and and we need to see that game 
just for some some to make help make sense of the ODAC. I'm trying to avoid your favorite word there. You see what I did? I did see that. You, it's a Friday night game on your campus. That's a uh, that's a new one. That is. It's true because they uh, Randolph Macon just put in lights this year, and you just gave me a good idea for Friday. I ho hope the the kids are ready for an hour ride south. Sounds good. Except of course it'll be three hours in DC traffic. Uh, right. Cortland State is at TCNJ. Uh, Hampton Sydney at Bridgewater. Uh, not to go back to the ODAC, but remember when that was one of the fantastic games to look forward to every season in Division Three football. Uh, Buffalo State hosts Utica. Uh, Allegheny travels to University of Chicago and a lot of other games as we continue on down the list in another great week of Division Three football. That is, uh, October finally kicks off in Week 6. So, it, well, I'll go ahead and say what you were going to say. Oh, I was just going to say, if you made it this far, you know, there was that point, Pat, where you were talking about all the different options in Texas where you may be the only person on earth that, that is able to talk off the top of the head about the different options. And uh, we, we appreciate you guys listening to the podcast and, uh, and, and making sense or I appreciate you helping make sense out of all that. So don't forget, uh, this is the Around the Nation podcast. Keith's Around the Nation column comes out on Thursday. Did you see the air quotes? Uh, around the region columns on Tuesday and Wednesday. We have uh, Play of the Week coming out Tuesday morning. Our Around the Region columns, I mentioned that already, of course. Um, and you can see the, the, the minimal handful of D3 reports. Uh, some of our, our usual uh, D3 report schools were off this week, so we did not get a whole lot of them. We hope to see uh, more of them as the season continues on. So... Thanks for joining us. This is the Around the Nation podcast.